0: Welcome to Cybersecurity Unplugged, the Cyber Theory podcast where we explore issues that matter in the world of cybersecurity. So, good day, everyone. This is Steve King. I'm the managing director at Cyber Theory. Today, our podcast features Chris Miller, who's an uh, associate professor of international history at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Chris is a doctor, and his research has focused on Russian history, politics, and economics. He is also the author of Plutonomics, Power and Money in a Resurgent Russia, is the rest of that title. And We Shall Be Masters, Russian Pivots to East Asia, from Peter the Great to Putin. Is that complete title? So, uh, welcome, Chris. I'm happy you could join us.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me.
0: Sure, let's jump in here. I, I think last spring you had mentioned that the Russian economy was like the 11th largest in the world. It now appears that it may shrink to five percent or less this year. Is this a consequence of a war in which oil and gas has become weaponized and Ukraine has stood up, you know, surprisingly strong in the face of the Russian military, or is it an indication that Russia's military is not as strong as we suspect or project?
1: Well, I think both dynamics are true. Russia's military has underperformed certainly its own expectations, but also the expectations of most analysts outside of Russia um, for a number of reasons, partly because I think there was some overestimation in terms of the capabilities of Russian military systems. But I think a lot more important is the extent to which both Russia and external observers overestimated Russia's ability to use its capabilities in effective ways. And things like command and control or effective planning are sort of difficult to assess in the abstract. You know, They've worked in prior wars and Project that forward, but the real difficulties Russia's faced in a lot of the soft spheres, um, whether it's planning, whether it's logistics, whether it's uh, command and control, whether it's morale, or something that there were some indications of, but have been surprising the degree to which uh, they've been problematic. And then next to that, there's also been the economic war, uh, is what I call it. Uh, Russia's been blockading Ukraine, of course, trying to. Drive down living standards in that country and reduce support for the war. The West is doing something similar to Russia by dramatically restricting Russia's interconnections with the international financial system and the amount of goods that can be imported by Russia. And so Russia's imports have fallen by around half compared to pre war levels. And then finally, Russia's retaliated against the West by trying to drive up energy prices, most notably the price of natural gas in Europe, but also more generally its exports of oil and coal have also some restrictions and the prices of those have gone up as well. So each party is trying to hurt the other economically, even as the the war continues on the battlefield. And the fact that none of the sides has been able to score what you might call a knockout blow thus far means that the conflict looks likely to continue for at least the next couple of months, because the Russians' demands are still quite large for a big chunk of Ukraine's territory. Uh, and Ukraine looks highly unwilling to Give any territory up, and so in that context, it's hard to see an easy way out.
0: Prior to this war, uh, just as an aside, Ukraine didn't have a great reputation in the West, right? I mean, didn't we we meaning the West uh, uh, generally look upon that country as being somewhat corrupt?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. I I think that that is an accurate description of how the U.S. and I think also. European countries, and certainly also Russia looked on Ukraine. In hindsight, that there certainly were plenty of corruption issues in Ukraine beforehand, but I think that actually missed the bigger picture in Ukraine, which was that although the political class was in many ways quite corrupt, the Ukrainian society um, was relatively united around a number of key questions. And, and key among those was the importance of Ukrainian identity and the desire for territorial integrity. And so I think a lot of the foreign emphasis on corruption issues and on things of that nature missed the big story, which is that Ukraine was a real nation that wanted its territory to be under its control rather than the control of an outside power. And that, that would be by far the more important factor than any sort of corruption issues that were faced. And we underestimated that in the West. Putin very clearly underestimated the strength of that feeling as well. And if you ask yourself, why is it that the Ukrainians were able to rally around their political leadership, President Zelensky, and rally around the military in the early days of the war, it was because that national feeling was really quite strong, far stronger than most outsiders really expected it to be. And so in hindsight, that's actually the the key fact of Ukrainian politics is is that national feeling, the Ukrainian national identity rather than corruption issues, which seem is a lot less important uh, in hindsight.
0: Yeah, and Zelensky's a good actor too, <laughs> you know. And I was, I wasn't uh, implying in any way, and I should have qualified that the people, the Ukrainians themselves, were corrupt. Well, I, when I say that, and I, I would say that about every country on the planet, that uh, it's always the folks in charge, the administrators, if you will, the Congress, the Senate, the whomsoever bureaucrats that run the country that is where uh, corruption normally is found. That's actually all I meant. Yet, uh, if you look at some of the footage that we've seen with the Putin interaction under Obama with uh, administrative leaders at the time, it, there was a lot of yada yada going on that you know was probably not the best you know look for them. We talk about sanctions on both sides and this sort of push and pull, or I'll do this sanction, you do that sanction kind of thing. Are these having an effect on the oligarchs at all? And are they putting increased pressure on Putin to act in some way? Because from my point of view over here, it looks like Putin's getting very wealthy in the process. And I'm wondering how effective these things are, and what you what you think of the the longer term effect. Again, on the individual players involved here, not the longer term effect. If this continues the way it's going, is a lot of people are going to
1: starve and freeze to death. Yeah, you know, I think in terms of understanding how the Russian political system functions, I think in the West we've overestimated the role that oligarchs play relative to the chiefs of the security services. The reality is that if you're a business owner in Russia, you're highly unlikely to go to President Putin or any political leader with demands about foreign policy or any sort of high political issue, because if you get on the wrong side of the Kremlin, you might lose all your assets, end up in jail, end up exiled, or even dead. Because of that, the oligarchs, although they make great news stories and they have fancy yachts and often scandals associated with them, they're really not players at all in Russian foreign policymaking. And insofar as people in the United States and in Europe have hoped that targeting them would somehow change Russian foreign policy, there's no evidence that that's worked in the past. And it's hard to understand what the mechanism would be going forward. They're all trying to keep their heads down, stay out of politics because they're afraid their assets are going to get confiscated, either to hand to one of Putin's friends or to, at this point, to use in the war effort. So the key question I don't think is isn't are the oligarchs worse off and what do they think about the war? I think the key question is, uh, is the Russian government having a harder time balancing its domestic political constraints? It's got to keep pensioners happy. If pensions decline dramatically, people get angry. It's got to keep state employees happy. Uh, if salaries decline, people get angry. And now it's got a really expensive military operation to fund. And doing all of this in the context of a shrinking economy and all of the sanctions that have been imposed can be tough. And so that that is the key balancing act, which sanctions have made more difficult. But it's really not about the oligarchs per se. It's about the overall Russian government budget and the overall balancing act politically for the Kremlin.
0: Right. This Nord Stream 2 gas line that just blew up, there are folks around the world that actually suggest that Putin actually ordered this strike. And I struggle to find the logic in that. Do you have some insight as to why, if he did that, why he would have done such a thing?
1: Well, it, it does seem like the Russians are the most plausible culprit. You know, the number of countries with the capability to launch three basically simultaneous attacks on a pipeline so far underwater is not large. Uh, the Russians have a lot of ways they could do it. Most of the countries don't. It's only 200 but, feet, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, and we know the Russians have substantial submarine capabilities, not only in terms of and traditional submarines, but also in terms of naval special forces. So I think there's a lot of reasons to suspect it is the Russians. And I think the rationale would be they're saying to the West, we're gonna keep escalating the costs on you, take more and more risky moves because we're committed, we're gonna do anything to win the war, even blowing up our own pipelines, which were intended to supply Germany with gas. Of course, they weren't supplying anyone with gas right now and they weren't like to in the foreseeable future. But I think that gives you a sense into the way the Russians are trying to signal their willingness to bear cost, uh, And right now, Putin is indeed embarked on a very costly strategy for Russia. Mass mobilization is going to be the defining decision of his political career. You know, whether it turns out to be an effective uh, warfighting effort remains to be seen, but he's bet everything on winning this war. And that's what he's trying to make clear to the rest of the world. He's saying, I will not surrender, so you better be prepared to make concessions first. That's the message they are trying to get across.
0: Well, he's getting that across. What happens, in your estimation, if he succeeds? What What does he do
1: next? I mean, first off, I think it's far from clear they've got a pathway towards success. Success for Russia means getting the Ukrainians to admit that Russia controls 20% or so of Ukraine's territory. And it's very difficult to see a pathway by which Ukraine would agree to that. Certainly, over the next couple of months, where we have some visibility... As to how the situation will develop, Ukraine is highly, highly unlikely to agree to anything along those lines. So I think. Uh,
0: unless I'm cold and hungry enough.
1: Well, I think, you know, look, the Ukrainians have already suffered a whole lot over the course of this war. And I don't think one winter is going to be enough to induce territorial concessions. If you look at the polling in Ukraine, you know, the latest polling, and obviously we should put a lot of caveats over any sort of wartime poll, but something around 90% of Ukrainians think they're going to win the war and 90% are opposed to any sort of territorial concessions. And that gives you a sense, I think, of where the Ukrainian populace is on these issues, which means that victory for Russia is highly unlikely in the short term. And if it happens at all, it's going to be only after imposing massive costs on the Ukrainian population over a long time. But I, I, I think the Russians have a really hard pathway ahead because they've bungled the war so dramatically in the first seven months now because they've used up a lot of their initial military potential in poorly designed operations that were badly executed, because now it's not at all clear which society is more willing to bear a long war. The Ukrainians very clearly know what they're fighting for. They have, they have fewer resources than the Russians. They have much more consensus about the goals of the war. Russians have more resources. But they have much less consensus about this operation, which started, quote unquote, as a special military operation in Russian parlance, and only now is beginning to move towards something that is admitted to be more like a war. And I don't think we have anywhere near the level of consensus in Russian society about, A, what the point of this conflict is, and B, willingness to bear costs to achieve territorial gains.
0: How badly does he need support of the Russian people, though?
1: Well, he, he doesn't need support of every Russian, but he certainly needs support of the rest of the political elite, others in the security services, the military elite, the provincial political leadership. If the rest of the elite turns against him, uh, his political position is weaker and the risk of a palace coup is higher. Um, I I wouldn't predict that to happen this week or next week. But I think if the military situation gets worse, if the mobilization continues in its current pretty haphazard state, it's impossible to rule out the prospect that others in the Russian elite say Hey, this guy's really lost the plot on what Russian foreign policy ought to look like. You know, whether or not you agree with his aims, and there certainly are certainly a lot of people in Russia who agree with Putin's aims of trying to dominate Ukraine. It's just not very effective, and so that that is, I think, a risk going forward for Putin that if he keeps bungling different parts of the war, the bungled the early stages of the war, bungled the campaign in the Donbas this summer. Uh, now, as bungling mobilization, it's harder for him to keep the support of the elite, and more plausible to imagine ways that a faction of uh, other elites might try to move to push him out.
0: Yeah, as you know, our our, our business here, though it doesn't sound like it so far, <laughs> is cybersecurity. Many in our community have wondered about whether uh, you know Putin's gonna. Going to execute a uh, a cybersecurity strike against uh, Ukraine, and there are a lot of ways he could do that. There's no evidence that he has so far. Can you explain why you think that hasn't happened, and whether you think it will?
1: Well, we we do know that there have been a fair number of cyber attacks against Ukraine, and and companies like Microsoft have released some pretty detailed reports outlining um, what they've seen thus far. I think what we haven't seen is a hugely successful cyber attack against Ukraine, and I think there's a good argument to be made that actually Ukraine, although it was very vulnerable a decade or so ago, because of the cyber attacks it received from Russia over the past decade, it's been a real focal point of cybersecurity efforts since then. And the fact that major Western tech companies and cybersecurity companies have been investing so heavily in Ukraine in recent years, and also since the start of the war, uh, suggests in some ways, that actually Ukraine might not be nearly as vulnerable as it used to be to uh, Russian cyber attacks because they've experienced more than anyone in the world. So I think part of the story ought to be attributed to Ukrainian defenses. And like the rest of the war, I think we've underestimated Ukrainian capabilities and overestimated Russian capabilities. And on the Russian capability side, you know, one question is whether Russian capabilities were as substantial as we thought before the war. And you know, I don't have any. To of inside scoop on this i'm sure u.s intelligence is trying you know very aggressively to figure out whether russia is holding back on the cyber front or whether russia is trying and, and just failing but it, it does seem like perhaps our general rounding down of our estimates of russian military potential uh, ought to apply to the the cyber sphere as well so i would be skeptical if the story were predominantly about russia holding back just uh, because they haven't held back in very many other spheres And it seems to me that when you look at their operations on the battlefield, like Ukraine's success on the battlefield, there's more reason to think that Ukrainian defenses and faulty Russian uh, offensive systems have more to do with explaining why there haven't been any highly successful or many highly successful and highly impactful cyber attacks against Ukraine.
0: Yeah, perhaps Ukraine is better at defending than we give them credit for or gave them credit for. But we've had an interesting series of exchanges between Putin and Xi in China lately that have caused some folks to wonder whether the CCP are suddenly not as cozy with Russia as they were earlier. Can Russia accomplish whatever it is they're trying to accomplish here without China's help? And then what is China's incentive with Russia either way, to support or break from from Russia?
1: Well, I think best part, China has been rhetorically supportive for most of the war, blaming the West for the conflict, for example, and, and really absolving Russia. But it hasn't actually done much to help Russia actively in the military sphere that we've seen. It's certainly continued to trade with Russia in substantial ways. It hasn't gone out of its way to help Russia economically, but it hasn't certainly joined any of the sanctions the West has imposed either. You know, I think the, the Chinese have some ability to influence Russia's thinking on the war. And the fact that the most recent Xi-Putin summit did not result in a, a lot of Chinese rhetorical support for Russia, I think, was interpreted within Russia as a sign that Putin's international standing is weakening yet further. It's not just that he lost the West. He's losing some of the countries that were previously much more friendly, like China and also India and Turkey. But ultimately, the key factor in shaping the war is not going to be what China does or what any other country does, but what conditions in Russia look like. That is the key question that determines when this war is likely to end and on what terms. And although Russian elites will be looking to some extent at other powers, their predominant question is going to be: How can they keep holding on to power at home, and what is their best strategy going forward? Is it to continue the war or to try to end it? And and regroup without a war going on. And so I, I would look much more at that, I think, than, than I would at the, the views in Beijing, that they do filter into the Russian political process in some ways.
0: Yeah. Do you think Putin's capable of uh, using a nuclear device on just purely on offense as he's, uh, what, uh, threatened, I guess? I think
1: you certainly can't completely exclude the possibility, but I will say that I think it sounds not that plausible. If you think of the scenario in which it's, it's most likely, I think it's a scenario in which Russia is doing badly on the battlefield. If it loses more territory, for example, in the Donbass or elsewhere, I think that's the scenario in which nuclear use is most plausible. But that's also the scenario in which the Russian military is going to be looking at the territory they're losing and saying, is Putin really going to be around for a very long time? In all of the scenarios in which Russia loses territory, the risk of a coup goes up and the likely duration of Putin's time and power, I think, goes down. And so I suspect there are some real command and control issues in the Russian military that would emerge immediately upon in order to even consider or start planning for nuclear usage, because the Russian military, uh, the leadership is going to be thinking about his own personal interests, as well as Putin's interests. And if they know they'll be held personally accountable, or if they'll be worse off having used the nuclear weapon, especially for a leader whose time and power looks like it's, it looks like it's coming closer to an end than otherwise it seemed, I'm not so sure we should think that the Russian military would be willing to carry it through that order. We don't know. It's impossible to know. If I'm calling into question the Russian military's willingness to carry out that order, I think Putin might be as well, which probably provides a further disincentive for actually going in that direction, because there would be nothing more devastating to his hold on power domestically if he ordered such a dramatic escalation and the military simply refused to execute it.
0: Yeah, that would equate to a coup, would it not?
1: Pretty much so, yeah. And that's, I think, why Putin's got to be pretty nervous. And look at Russian civil-military relations right now. You know, the reality is they've got to be pretty tense. Putin started a war that the military wasn't given proper time and space to plan for. Many, even fairly senior officers, it seems, were unaware that a war was about to happen until they were literally marching or driving across the Ukrainian border since then, According to U.S. intelligence leaked to U.S. media, Putin's been involved in the granular details of wartime planning and evidently done not a great job of it. And so I got to think that the relationship between top generals and the Kremlin is already fairly strained. And so I think if I were Putin, I'd be trying to manage that very carefully um, because of the small number of groups that could plausibly help push Putin out, military is certainly one of them.
0: Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure you're right. I'm aware of our clock here and I got I have one final question I wanted to ask you about education. You've obviously made a serious investment both in time and money and attention and mindshare to to education both for yourself and for the environment in which you work. And some of us look at our adversarial situation in cybersecurity and conclude that we're sort of hopelessly behind, at least from an education point of view and on all levels. And and that sort of inattention has widened the gap between the skills that we need and those we we don't have. In fact, you know, some feel, myself included, that it's so bad now that it's going to require some kind of Manhattan-style project to reverse this this current direction. What are your what are your thoughts about digging out of the, the hole that we're in?
1: Well, it's an it's an interesting question. I think it's hard in some ways to mm-hmm. really measure the efficacy of of different systems. And I think if you look at cybersecurity, you know, on the one hand, the U.S. faces tremendous challenges with all of the cyber attacks that make the headlines, and the difficulties we face in in securing whether it's governmental systems or corporate systems or any type of systems from cyber attack. On the other hand, you know, if you look at the tech sector more generally, the story for the U.S. is is actually quite positive, and and education has a lot to do with that. I mean, it, one thing we could discuss is the the topic of my my new book on the semiconductor industry called "Chip War: The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology." And one of the things that that book illustrates is that actually the U.S. still has a critical and irreplaceable role in the foundational technologies that make the rest of the tech sector possible, whether it's the software you use to design ships, or the machine tools you use to produce them. And so when I look at that picture for the tech sector, which is critical not just for tech, but for the overall economy, actually, uh, the U.S. looks a lot better off. And indeed, when you compare that to Russia, which you know is putting U.S.-made and U.S.-designed ships in its own missiles because it's so far behind that just illustrates the enduring advantages the US has. And I think that applies to China as well. You know, China spends more money importing semiconductors than it does importing oil. And one of the things that I was really struck in, in researching my chip war book was the extent to which of all the chips that China is importing, basically all of them depend on US technology. Either they're made in the US, they're designed in the US, they're produced with US tools and software. So I actually ended up boring a little bit less about the education picture. Not that I disagree with you that there's a lot of work to be done, but I think the results of the US system are also um, surprisingly uh, strong and durable over time. Uh, And I think Semiconductor Case is a a really good example of that. That's something that that stood out to me when I was writing Chip War.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think you're right for that specific sector. We're going to have to figure out how to get there for, for cybersecurity pretty quick here. However, as that train continues rolling down the track and I'm concerned about it, that's why we're, we've developed our own online training facility. And, you know, we're launching that in the next quarter and I hope that, or the current quarter, I guess. And I hope that, as you say, we're we're able to do that in time. Give me the name of, that, of your new book again, and we might as well plug it one more time.
1: It's called chip war, the fight for the world's most critical technology.
0: Right. All right, Chris Miller, PhD, Tufts University. I really appreciate you taking the time to to share uh, your view on all of this. It's uh, mostly foreign to most folks that are in our audience, but they're also interested and in, in hungry for some authoritative thought leadership on the topic so i think that's what we got today and i really appreciate it well
1: thanks again for having me
0: sure and thanks to uh, our audience for taking the time as well and uh, hopefully you got a great takeaway today and uh, we'll look for you next time this is steve king your host signing off Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cybersecurity Unplugged. You can connect with us on LinkedIn or Facebook at CyberTheory or send us an email at social at cybertheory.io. For more information about the podcast, visit cybertheory.io forward slash podcast. Until next week, thanks again.